said, I want to go ahead and jump into my message today. If you were not here when I started the service, don't forget, we're doing baptisms after altar call. I'd love for you to be able to stick around and watch people uh, say yes to the Lord and go public with their confession of faith. Uh, in the meantime, though, we're going to be in John chapter number seven. If you'd like to turn in your scripture to, the, to that passage, John chapter number seven. Now, we're in an interesting place in the gospel of John because we're starting to make some transition. John has kind of built up the ministry of Jesus to this point, and now there's starting to be a shift in the perspective, and we're heading into a season which Jesus is going to start giving us a bunch of I am statements, where he's trying to make it obvious who he is and that he is God, and, and so he's starting to work that direction, and we need to pay attention to, to what he's doing because he works in a really unique way. He works in a way that oftentimes we do not understand. Now, with that, I want to start out with a question for you. Who is the most interesting person that you know in your life? Who is the most interesting person you've ever had a conversation with or that you've associated with? I imagine today that if we started going around the room that every single one of us would have a variety of answers, but there probably would be a theme that would start to develop after a while. A lot of us would probably say our grandfather or our grandmother was one of the most interesting people in our life. If that's you and you say, probably the, the coolest person I had in my life was my, my grandfather, my grandmother. Raise a hand. Look at that. Hands going up all over the place. There's something about grandparents that are really unique and interesting in our life. Their stories and how they start to shape us resonate with us, and they're very important to us. I was thinking as I was preparing for this message that my grandfather was one of the most interesting people in my life. He grew up in the Depression era, and he knew a little bit about everything like most people of that generation, and he was kind of a Renaissance man. He worked as a mechanic his entire life. He could fix anything, and yet he loved to bake pies, and he loved to make Thanksgiving dinner. He, he knew how to sew together pants and blankets and things like that. He could do literally anything, and so it was always fun for me to sit down and talk with him because he was interesting in my life. There's something that's mysterious about interesting people. There's something where we, we try to figure them out. We, we examine their life, we listen to their stories, and we can never quite put all of the pieces together. And that's kind of how Jesus is. There's, there's, there's no one that has been more interesting who has lived and walked on this earth than the man Jesus Christ. When you read about his life in Scripture, there's anything but boring for him. He always seemed to have the right answer. He always seemed to have solutions solutions, but he tended to work in ways that were mysterious and unique about him. Jesus is the most interesting man in the world. Now, you probably remember that commercial several years ago where, you know, that the most interesting man in the world, he did these stupid things like he bowled overhand and mosquitoes wouldn't bite him out of respect. That guy is not the most interesting man in the world. Uh, they did have some good ones, though, if you're curious, just for fun, for just a moment. Um, he once ran a marathon because it was on his way. Like, that was my favorite. If opportunity knocks and he's not at home, opportunity waits, right? Once selling around the world, he discovered a shortcut. That would be an interesting thing to be able to do. But he is not the most interesting man. The most interesting man who has ever walked on this planet is Jesus Christ. And hear me, because he's the most interesting man, that's also what frustrates us about him. Jesus is the most interesting man who ever walked on this earth. And Jesus can also be the most frustrating person in our life. Why? Because he doesn't do things the way that we would do them. 
He doesn't work the way that you and I would work. He doesn't doesn't approach things in our life the way that we wish that he would. And because Jesus doesn't do things the way that we would do them, they frustrate us. he, 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 He sometimes brings us to points in our life where we're facing things and he doesn't work the way that we want him to, and we're sitting there scratching our heads saying, God, why are you not moving the way I would move in this situation? And if we were to be honest in those moments, it causes us frustration in our life. Now, I think some of you are sitting here saying, is it okay to be frustrated at Jesus? And the answer is, I don't know if it's okay to be frustrated at him or not, but I suspect that all of us have been frustrated with him from time to time. If you look over your course of your life, there are things that you prayed for that didn't happen. And that probably caused frustration in your life. There's seasons in your life where you ask God for some direction, some guidance, and he didn't seem to give it to you. There's been some seasons you've asked for a miracle and it didn't come. There's been seasons when you ask God to bless a certain area of your life and it felt like things got worse. And when those moments come, if we want to admit it or not, we tend to get frustrated because he doesn't do the things that we would do. Now we're going to be in John chapter number seven today. And in John chapter seven, what we see is that Jesus is operating in his father's will, which will come in conflict with the will of man. The Father's will and how God approaches things is never going to be the same way that you and I would approach things, and that causes frustration. So if there was a big idea from this passage that we're about to read, it would be this. God's way is not our way, and that's actually a good thing. It's a good thing that God doesn't work the way that you and I would work. So with that, let's read this passage. John chapter number 7. We're going to start in verse number 1. Here's what it says. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's good enough reason not to go. Now, the the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him." Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much murmuring about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled. How is it that this man has learning? Has he never studied? And Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? 
And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, though it was not Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may, may not be broken, are you angry with me on the Sabbath that I made a man's whole body well? Don't judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Now, this seems like a very random passage of Scripture within the account of John. I mean, there's a lot of just arguing, debating between Jesus and the religious leaders, between Jesus and his brothers, and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us, but there's one thing that is abundantly evident in this passage is that everyone is frustrated at Jesus. His brothers don't particularly care for him. The religious people don't care for him. He's confusing the crowds. No one seems to understand Jesus, and they're very frustrated with them. Now, within this passage, though, we see Jesus' nature, and we also see his tendencies, and we see the qualities that come into conflict with our nature and with his nature from time to time. Jesus will always follow the will of his heavenly Father, God the Father in heaven. And that frustrates us because God's ways are not our ways. There's one way that we would do things, there's another way that God would do things. And because Jesus Jesus is wholly separate from us. If we're going to be Christ followers, then we have to learn to submit ourselves to the will of God. When we learn to submit our frustration and our will to God, at that moment is the moment when we become submissive and we become true Christians to Christ. And that's the moment where God can really begin then to flow and work through our life. Now, I want to show you five points of frustration with the nature of Jesus, five things that are going to frustrate us time and time again. These are five points that are going to come in conflict with our nature and our character, and these are five points in which we must learn to submit ourselves to God. The first thing I want to show you is this, is Jesus frustrates us because Jesus' rhythm is never in our timing. Have you ever uh, been to a church service where no one can clap on time together? Have you ever been there? play the drums when I was a little kid, and I was really terrible at playing the drums when I first started out. So I'm at 13, 14 years old. I'm up there trying to play the drums to hymns that I've never heard before. They have weird timing signatures anyways, because they were not written to have any sort of percussive instrument with them. And then there would be inevitably some lady shows up who has a tambourine who cannot keep a beat. Okay. It will test the nerves of a young person trying to learn to play drums. So I'm terrible anyways. And then, you know, half the people are like, you know, you know, like, and it's just, and you're like, what in the world do I do? And so it gets frustrating because the rhythm and the timing is not together. Anytime the rhythm and the timing are not together, it's just noise to the ear. You listen to people like playing sync, it's awesome. When it's out of rhythm and timing, it's frustrating. Now, Jesus is the only person who's ever walked on this earth who can truly and wholly say he doesn't care what other people think about him. Jesus marched to his own beat. He lived for an audience of one, and that was his father in heaven. And as such, he followed the father's timing for his life. He did not cater to the expectations of the crowd around him. As such, he never listened to the opinions of other people from him. 
We know from scripture that Jesus had many half-brothers and sisters. In fact, many of his brothers and sisters will become leaders in the church after Jesus raises from the dead. However, at this point, his brothers and his sister and even his mom struggled to believe in him. You see this, this dynamic throughout the gospels and his brothers just straight up did not believe in him at all. And so I, we can't really blame them. If one of our siblings said that they were God, we'd probably struggle to understand that as well. However, his brothers have been watching Jesus do his signs to this point and they scoff at him and they say that this. Hey, why don't you go on up to Jerusalem and make yourself known? If you're God, why don't you go public with it? They're kind of calling, quote unquote, Jesus's bluff, so to speak. If you're the Messiah, then stop playing games. Let's go all in. Let's see what you really got. His brothers are wanting Jesus to work in their own timing for their own reasons. And what this teaches us is that Jesus's timing is always associated with his own agenda. And very rarely will Jesus's timing and agenda match our timing and our agenda. Now start thinking about all the times in your life. You're like, God, why are you not working on my behalf? And the answer is very simple because oftentimes His agenda and his timing are not in sync with our agenda and our timing. Since the brothers were unbelievers, God's timing really didn't matter in their life. This is a terrible place to be. They don't mind Jesus. They don't don't have the agenda of Christ. Therefore, they don't understand his timing. Christ responds to them. It's not my time. I'm not going to Jerusalem right now. I'll go in a little bit, but I'm not going right now because I'm not going to do the things that you want me to do. That's not my agenda for this season. And his brothers couldn't see that. And this is the thing that will frustrate us about Jesus more than anything else because Jesus doesn't move in our timing. And what we have to learn to do in this moment is to have a shift in our agenda and our purpose in this season. The issue is always agenda, and we need to examine our heart when we feel like God is not working our timing. We need to say, God, is my agenda in sync with your agenda? We need to make our agenda for our life, for our season, for our situation match his agenda for our life in this season. And when we start doing that, that's when peace starts to come because we know that we're living in the plan and the purpose of God for our life. You want to know the most effective and scary prayer you can ever pray in your life? Say this, God, change my heart's desires to match your agenda. You want to pray that prayer? That's scary. That might mean that you get to give up on some things. But it also means this, though, that you're walking the will of God for your life. Jesus frustrates us first because his rhythm is not in our timing. Second, because Jesus often works in private. Jesus will frustrate us because most of the time when he works, it seems to be in private. Jesus' brother's like, hey, look, if anybody was wanting to start a revolution, right, you'd want to go perform some of these miracles in front of the Romans and show them that they can't touch you. Like, you're doing all these miracles, you're doing them out in the countryside where nobody sees them. You need to go where the, the city's at. You need to go where the action's at so that they can see your miracles and maybe believe in you. Because, I mean, hey, if you raise a few dead people, the Romans will think, well, hey, we can't kill this guy. If you walk on water in front of some people, that prove who you are. And Jesus basically says, no, no, that's not how I intend to work. What? 
In our culture, we like big, flashy things. We like things that go fast. We like things that are flashy. We like things that are nice. How many of you went to the, went to the cruise night last weekend? We like those cars, seeing, the, seeing all the cars, you know, hearing the sounds, the smell and the exhaust. It's awesome, unless you've had COVID, in which case you can't smell the exhaust anymore. But we like the flashy things. And in fact... From a worldly perspective, one of the leadership principles that they tell you is this. If you want to lead people, you got to cast a vision, get buy-in. you got to get people on your team. Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. What we see from the gospel accounts is that Jesus often did his work in private and in smaller settings. Think about all the miracles that we've read in the gospel of John to this point. How many people were really at the wedding that Jesus turned water into wine? Jesus heals a man by the well, and he jets out of there. How many people really saw him multiply the, the bread and the loaves, or they just ate and knew that Jesus somehow made it happen? Only a couple disciples saw him walk on water. Jesus tends to do things in private, and this frustrates us because we like big, spectacular things. We ask the question, why don't we see the miracles like the disciples saw? Why don't we live like the disciples? However, I have to say this. I think God does a lot of things in secret that would be surprised. By a show of hands, let's do a little taste, test case this morning. By a show of hands, if you've ever seen God do a miracle in your life, like bona fide miracle, like God rearranged things, God healed my body, God did something that only God can do, and you saw that work in your life, raise your hand. Okay, keep your hands up. Look around. Why don't we see God work? Look at all the hands that are up. God's still working but oftentimes it's in private when we don't see it. You can put your hands down. Here's the reality. Flashy things don't change the heart. Later in the book of John, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There is a crowd at this event. Religious leaders are there. Families are there. People are mourning. People are watching this happen and unfold. And he raises the dead. Everyone knew what he did. In Jerusalem, everybody knew what they did because the Bible says they wanted to kill him for it. Not only did they want to kill Jesus, the Bible also says in John that they want to kill Lazarus too. So here's the point. We think big flashy things move the kingdom of God. But Jesus does things in a purpose, and most of the time it's not normally for flash. He works in private in a way that's difficult for us to figure out why, because Jesus is seeking the glory of his Father, and he's working a plan, and he's working a purpose, and it might not be in the way that we would do it. It might not be in the timing nor in the style that we desire, but here's what I do know is that God is always working. And what that means for us, it requires us to continually submit our faith to him and say, God, in this season, I know that you still work. I know that you're working in my season, even though I'm not seeing you move the way I want you to. I'm submitting my faith. I'm submitting my hope. I'm submitting my desires to you, knowing that you're going to move on my behalf. Third, Jesus frustrates us because often Jesus doesn't give us signs. Instead, he gives us teachings. Jesus' brothers told him, make your signs public. And you'll notice that throughout the gospels, the skeptics are always asking Jesus to perform signs and wonders for them. Humans are fascinated with supernatural stuff. This is why horror movies are so popular in our society. We like watching TV shows about ghosts and blah, 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 all this stuff. We love this stuff. Sometimes the desire to be wowed sounds spiritual. Show me a sign, Jesus, and I'll believe in you. 
perform a miracle. That's something I can put my, my hand to. I'll know that you're really God. That's what the religious leaders were consistently telling Jesus to the point that when he was hanging on the cross, they said, if he's really God, he'll pull himself down. Never mind all the miracles that he had already done. And a lot of times we can identify with this crowd because we're always asking for a sign. But a lot of times Jesus gives us teachings instead. Often the solution for our problem isn't a miracle or a sign, but proper teaching to correct the issue. Okay, I don't want to get myself in trouble. So we're all friends, right? I mean, (laughs) you're like, God, I need you to heal my marriage. And God's like, I need you to speak nicely to your spouse. (laughs) You know, all the ladies said, amen. It could go the other way. (laughs) The fellas out there working and bought you flowers and you picked on him because his jeans were dirty, right? (laughs) He's dirty. I'm going to take a bath. Praying for God, I need you to perform a financial miracle. And God's like, I need you to stop spending $20 at the gas station on junk food. That's a good one. God, I need you to make these kids come out all right. And God's like, I need you to live out the word in front of them. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Here's the bottom line. Signs and wonders are still for today, but signs and wonders are not a shortcut to living a Christ-honoring life. Jesus confirms this to us with the story of Lazarus and the rich man. It's one of the most fascinating stories to me in the Bible. Jesus tells a story, and it's unlike any other story he tells. He tells a lot of parables, but this story is different. Just how he frames it, how he words it. Like in his parables, he never gives names to individuals, and this story he does. So what a lot of theologians and scholars believe is that Jesus is not giving us a parable. He's given us a real account of two individuals. He says that there was a rich man who's nameless, who had everything, and then there was Lazarus, a poor man. Lazarus just scraped by. The rich man had everything he needed, never gave Lazarus any attention. Both of them died. The rich man ended up in hell. Lazarus ends up in heaven. And the rich man looks up and he says, hey, send Lazarus over here because I need my cool, some water on my tongue to cool me down. I'm so hot in this torture. And Abraham standing there, he says, look, not going to happen. And so the rich man said, well, then send Lazarus to my brothers and tell them to get their life right so they don't end up in this place. And what does he say? He says they have the word. If they won't listen to the word, they're not going to believe even if a dead man came back. Here is the reality. Miracles and signs are not a shortcut to living a Christ-honoring life. And what this means is, is that we have to submit our will and our desires to Christ on a consistent and thorough basis. And this is what frustrated the crowd more than anything else. Because Jesus would do a miracle on the Sabbath. You'll notice all this talk on the Sabbath at the end. He would do miracles on the Sabbath because he then teaches, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's doing, and when he says that, he's saying, I am God. Well, the religious leaders didn't like that because what that meant was they had to give up their day to Christ. And they had to admit that their law wasn't going to be what made everybody go to heaven, that it was ultimately Jesus. And so this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But what Jesus is doing is he's pointing his finger to the heart of the religious people. And he's saying, look, these are things that you put your hope and your faith in. They're not going to get you to heaven. We talk about this a lot. We say that we, we value the word of God because where this book speaks, God speaks. 
But here's the thing, where this book speaks is going to offend every single one of us. If this book has never offended you, then you haven't read it enough. There's things in this book I wish it didn't say. There's things in the book you wish it didn't say, but it's there. And what being a Christian means is I submit myself to this book because this book is the teaching of my Lord and my Savior that he wants me to know. These are his words. And that frustrates us. So while we don't like that I have to be kind and compassionate and forgiving, and sometimes I just want just to start whipping people, that's what I do. Why? Because I crucify my flesh to this. This is why in our culture today, there's a big debate among sexuality and the church, but here's the thing. We have to submit our, our, our desires, and we have to submit our lives to it. There's those of us, we look at this book and we say, you know what? I don't want to be kind to other people. I don't want to be compassionate. I don't want to welcome people in, but we got to submit ourselves to this book. There's those of us, we look at different situations. We're like, but I, here's a big one. Here's a big one. I've heard a stat super concerning that the most likely people to be against immigration is people in the church. And yet what we see is that we're brought into the family of God. Here's the thing. We have to submit our political ideals to, the, to Christ. We have to submit our desires to Christ. We have to submit our worldview to Christ. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, is Austin trying to get political on the platform? Absolutely not. Here's what I am saying, though, is that we want God to do things a certain way. And what God's trying to say is, I'm trying to give you a teaching. I'm calling you to live by it. And that's going to offend every single one of us from time to time. And that frustrates us because... We look at this and we say, you know what? That's not what I like. It's not about what I, Austin Epperson, like. It's about what Christ is calling me to do. Fourth, Jesus frustrates us because Jesus breaks our cultural norms. You'll notice throughout the scriptures that the thing that frustrated religious leaders, as I just told you, was the complete lack of disregard that Jesus had for their cultural norms of the Sabbath. We see the... Religious leaders chasing after and clashing with Jesus over cultural norms. And every time the leaders get mad at Jesus, it seems like it's the Sabbath because Jesus is calling himself God. Sabbath is important because it said that it was created on the sixth day, or excuse me, on the seventh day when God rested from his six days of work. The Sabbath was rooted in the reality that God took a break from his work because his work was completed. It was pointing to Christ all along, that our redemption is in his hand. The Jewish culture had hijacked the Sabbath and made all these crazy rules. And so Jesus comes along and he's consistently breaking their cultural norms. He's saying, look, you're trying to do this thing on your own. You have to submit yourself to me. And these cultural issues consistently clashed with Christ on that day. And even in the church, we have cultural norms as Western Christians that we have to be very careful of that and are not necessarily biblical. We have to consistently examine ourselves and say, is this Christ or is this a worldview that I have for myself? And the problem is, is that when we start asking those questions, we're not always going to like the answers that we find. But we have to submit ourselves to Christ. Fifth, and finally, if the worship team wants to come back, Jesus frustrates us because Jesus seeks his glory over our gratification. At the end of the day, the people in Jesus' day and culture are no different than our day and culture. They were seeking justification and they were seeking gratification. 
They wanted to be told that they were good people doing the right thing and to carry on. And then Jesus comes in and challenges their lifestyle, and that frustrates them. Why is he challenging their gratification? Because he was looking to glorify the Father. Jesus said, if anyone speaks on his own authority, it's for his own glory. On the other hand, Jesus is doing the will of God for the glory of God. And often we don't understand Jesus's life because we are not looking to be, for Jesus to be glorified in our life. We're looking for our own needs to be met. And that's super profound if you think about it. A lot of us, the reason why we're frustrated is we say, Jesus, I have these desires and these needs in my life. Why aren't you meeting them? But the attitude of Christ, whom we're called to emulate, is that every day of our life should be asking the question, how can I bring glory to Christ? There's a massive difference in how I approach my walk with God when I say, Jesus, you know my needs. I'm presenting my needs and I'm trusting you to take care of me. However, what I'm seeking the most is your glory. How can I bring you glory and the honor in this situation that I find myself in? That is a very profound prayer if you think about it. Because the facts are every single one of us have needs in our life. If we were to go around the room this morning, we would begin to present those needs. The list would be longer than what we could begin to be able to wrap our mind around. Some of them would be big needs. Some of them would be little needs. Some of them would be a lot of weight to them. Some of them wouldn't. But the most difficult thing would be to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know this need, but how can I bring you glory and honor in this situation? That changes the perspective. That's one of the hardest prayers that we will ever pray. However, it's also one of the most effective prayers that we will ever pray. If you want to know how to pray effectively, pray that. God, not my will, but your will be done. It echoes the words of our Savior. So how do I stop being frustrated at Jesus? I mean, if Jesus is consistently frustrating me, how do I stop being frustrated at Jesus? The answer is be full of his spirit. Be full of his spirit. If you would, please stand with me this morning. I want to read to you the rest of this story. Jesus has some interaction through the next few verses, but then verse 37, he says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. I have a question for you this morning. Has Jesus frustrated you lately? I know that's not a real spiritual question to ask, but I think it's an important question to ask because it leads us to a very spiritual answer. Has Jesus been frustrating you? Is there places in your life right now that you've been praying and seeking God and yet all you do is find closed doors, no answers, and it's bringing to a place of frustration? The solution is this. The solution is to have his spirit in your life so it starts to conform your life to his image and to his likeness. 
At that point, all the things that frustrate us about God start to shift and start to change. Now I start to trust the timing of Jesus. Now I start to trust him to work in a way that I can't see. Now I start to trust his teachings to conform my life to his image. Now I trust him to allow him to break the cultural norms of my life. Now I'm starting to seek his glory and his righteousness. It completely shifts how we approach every single situation that we find ourselves in. If we're going to be Christ followers, the only way in which that's ever going to happen is to be full of his spirit. There's some of us that are thirsty today, and that thirst is creating that frustration. And Jesus' answer to this was to be full of the spirit. Now, make no mistake about it. He's not trying to turn you into a puppet. Rather, he's looking to give you his spirit so that you can live an empowered life so that the things that frustrated you before you're now in alignment with today and you see God's hand working in your life. That's what God wants to do for you and for me.